Page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. French, and this, of course, is the world's first podcast. Welcome to the show. If this is your first episode, you have picked a good one. We have a literary superstar from Vancouver on the show today, uh, Jen Suk Fong Lee, who I am beyond excited to talk to. Um, or at least I was. I, I was very excited to talk to her. I still am excited to continue talking to her, but uh, we did the interview, of course, before I recorded this intro. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to start off by apologizing because I did miss an episode two weeks ago. I meant to hit that deadline, put the episode out. We had to push the episode a little bit because of some scheduling issues and I just wasn't prepared. I didn't have an episode backlogged. And so here we are, you know, a month after the last episode. So thank you for your patience. If you're tuning in again now and we haven't lost you as a listener, you know, you haven't found another podcast, um, then thank you for sticking around. Uh, and it's worth it. It's worth the wait. This is a really fun interview. I really enjoyed talking to Jen. Um, she's a very, 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 very talented writer. She was influential um, for me as somebody trying to find a writing community in Vancouver and, and inspirational in that way um, without knowing it. And we talk about that right at the top of the episode. Um, and she's also, of course, the author of two new books. Uh, we're going to talk about one of them mainly today, The Shadow List, which is her poetry collection. But she's also the author of Finding Home, which is a children's book um, that I wish we had more time to get into because I'm actually really interested in finding out more about it. And I think it's very topical right now as well. Um, but if you somehow don't know who Jen Suk Fong Lee is, let me tell you, she was born and raised in Vancouver's East Side and she now lives with her son in North Burnaby. Her books include The Conjoined, which was nominated for International Dublin Literary Award and a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, The Better Mother, which was a finalist for the City of Vancouver Book Award, The End of East, Gentlemen of the Shade, The Shadow List, and Finding Home. Jen teaches at the Writer's Studio Online with Simon Fraser University, acquires and edits fiction for Woolsack and Wynn, and co-hosts one of my favorite podcasts, can't lit with Dina Del Bucchia. And I am so excited to have Jen on the show today. Here I am talking to her without any further ado. This is me and Jen Sukfong Lee. I am chatting today with Jen Sukfong Lee. Jen, how's it going? I mean, it's okay, I guess. Does anyone really know how it's going? <laughs> yeah, this is a weird time to be going at all, um, but we're trying our best, and it's nice to have the distraction, I suppose, of writing, depending on what you're writing about and how you're writing, uh, and to be talking about it with you today is really cool for me. Um, I am an aspiring literary podcaster, and so you're like a celebrity to me. Oh, um, oh, oh, no. No, <laughs> no, no, Jen, it's true. I swear. I So here's the backstory. I moved here from Ontario uh, three-ish years ago. Um, I was born here, and I lived here for most of my life, but I did my undergrad 
at Western. So when I came back and I would drive from North Van to UBC like twice a week, I would love to listen to your podcast. And it was like one of the things that made me want to talk to writers in Vancouver. And that was how this started. So I'm very grateful for you and Dina's podcast. It's called Can't Lit, if you're listening and you haven't heard it yet. I don't know how that would be the case, but you should definitely go listen to it. Um, um, that's like the yeah. nicest thing anyone's ever said to me about the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> really? No, it's true. And like, I think one of the first literary events I went to in Vancouver, Dina doesn't know this, maybe you can tell it for me, was Dina's book launch because for it's a big deal because when I was listening to the podcast, I was like, oh, here's somebody plugging a literary event. Why not make this my first one in Vancouver? I'm going to work up the courage to go. So I did. And it was really cool. So yeah, it's really nice. I was there. Were you? Oh, that's so cool. Wasn't I there for the, I think I I think. Wait, weren't you hosting? Yeah. No, I was like a contestant in her, in her game show on the stage. Um, Uh. I can't. I'd had a couple drinks and I can't precisely remember what the game was, <laughs> but I think there was a wheel. There might've been a wheel. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I, I seem to remember a wheel. I yeah. don't know. Um, but yeah, so, so you have um, probably without knowing it been a big influence on my writing and my, especially involvement in the writing community here in Vancouver. Uh, and so I wanted to start the show by saying that because I'm very thankful for um, your involvement in the community and, and your presence online and all of those things. So Aww, just wanted to lay that out at the start. Thanks. <laughs> and I'm so glad you started Page Fright. We need more. We need more uh, venues for writers to like talk about their stuff. Yeah. So let's talk about your stuff, Jen. We got <laughs> we got a book here. The Shadow List is your new book of poetry. Is this your first book of poetry? Sure is. <laughs> wow, that's that's crazy because you have published many a book. Um, so this is the first one that is poetry. Yeah. You've also got a children's book coming out simultaneously. So you're extremely busy. But um, before we jump in and I get you to describe the book and we talk about it in depth and all of that, could I get you to read us something to kick off the episode? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go in gently with a, a poem called uh, Community Garden. There, the bolting black kale, taller than it has any right to be, and not the Twitter troll who asked if you were on your period. In the corner, a pile of dead zucchini leaves, spotted with rot, and not the neighbor who yelled at you about a parking stall. Lighting the sidewalk, invasive, creeping Charlie, and not your mother complimenting your ex-husband's new wife. There we go. Very cool. Uh, So this is uh, a good, actually, it's a great sample. It's one of my favorite things on the show when people read poems that I've like flagged as favorites. And this was one of them. So that was very cool. Um, But yeah, I guess let's talk about the shadow list. Let's talk about writing poetry. Um, What was it like writing a book of poetry compared to the other books you've written? Oh, it was, it, it was so different. I, so not a lot of people know, but I actually started out writing poetry and I actually tried to finish an MFA with a poetry collection as my thesis. I did not finish this MFA. Um, and when I left uh, the program, I really kind of didn't know what I was supposed to be doing because I kind of failed at, you know, getting a master's degree. So um, I did. I stopped writing poetry for like 15 years. So I was writing um, novels, and I am an accidental novelist. But now this is how most people know me. And um, novels are the sorts of things that suck up all your brain space. You, I can't write anything else when I'm writing a novel. 
Um, and I published three of them in nine years, which is, which is fast. I'm not like the quickest writer in the world. Um, and my son was quite small and I didn't know what to write. And I didn't only had like short pockets of time. Um, and I thought to myself, well, what would happen if I started writing poetry again? Um, and that's how the shadow list, uh, came about. And I wrote it in fits and starts. Like I definitely wasn't sitting down and, you know, writing it for a year or anything like that. When I had time, um, in between my like seven day jobs and like parenting, um, I would write these poems and I did not think that they would become a collection. It was only, you know, much later, uh, after a couple of years, after a couple of my friends have been reading the poems, like, you know, these poems are all kind of, of a type. And I thought, okay, let's try to make it into a book. And here it is. <laughs> That's so cool. So um, I've talked to a couple people about this, but I feel like writing poetry for like, not necessarily with the intent to publish it, at least not in a collection, is a very different process from writing with the intent to create a collection of poems. Um, so when you, I guess, clued in and were like, hey, wait a second, my friends might be right. What if this is a collection that I'm writing? Did your process change at all? A little bit. Um, I certainly, there are um, sort of two different kinds of poems in here. There are the longer, um, what I would call, uh, ones that have a bit more narrative trajectory and, and the, um, the shape of them is all oddly. If I don't know if this is actually true, but this is how I feel about them is that the shape of them is all kind of circular. There's this logic that starts at a place, goes somewhere and, and ends up um, in the same place that we started from. Um, and there's those ones. And then there are ones that are a little bit shorter. Um, so when I was, you know, thinking about this as a book, I could see that there were two distinct parts. Like that was very clear. And then I realized, well, the balance of these things um, has to be the way that I want it. And then I would write things to fill in gaps. So that was sort of how it kind of, for sure, a, a lot of things changed when I began thinking of it as a collection. I began thinking about how the poems were on the page a bit more and how one poem could turn could run into a page and then the next poem is this one. Um, so yeah, a lot of things changed. And I, I really did try to fill in some gaps. Like I remember thinking, I haven't written a poem about like lipstick or leather pants yet. Why haven't I done that? <laughs> <laughs> so that should go here. Obviously, this is the appropriate spot for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is quite a range of subjects in here. And also, like you said, there is a range of like lengths of poems too. Um, one of the first things I wrote down this morning when I was like, what am I going to ask Jen today? Um, the first thing that came to mind was I need to ask about the introduction in the book, um, which is kind of this long poem um, and is so cool. I thought, uh, I don't know if I've seen this, like, it's definitely not necessarily common to do like, to straight up call the first poem in the book introduction is bold already. <laughs> and then it was so cool because it kind of allowed me as a reader to get into the headspace of the speaker um, who stays fairly consistent through a lot of the poems. So it was a really cool way of being like, oh, okay, yeah, no, now we're going into this world and this is how we're going to be seeing things. And it was really cool to read through that. So when did you, I guess, know that you were writing an introduction as a poem or what, how did this come about? I, you know what's so funny? I can't remember at what point I wrote that one. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to think, but I, I don't, the, the funny thing about that poem was that it was always called introduction. Um, and I don't know if I started writing it before or after I knew I had a book, uh, that it, it was going to become a book, but I remember writing this poem and it was always called introduction. And I, 
kept thinking it's just an introduction to the way my brain is working at this particular point in my life. Um, and then when I think, this is what I think happened. Um, actually, there's no one who's going to call me out on it. Nobody knows what I was doing when I was writing these poems by <laughs> myself. But um, I think what happened was that when the book started to come together, I already knew, I already had an introduction. Like it wrote itself. It presented itself to me and called itself that, which it sounds really strange. But it was the, one of the first lines in that poem is Cameron Crowe is to blame for everything. And mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, that's exactly what I think about most culture. <laughs> if anyone wants to know anything about me, that's really almost everything about me in one line. <laughs> I love that. I, I think like, um, so this is, this is something really cool too, um, that maybe I didn't write down to talk about, but I do want to, which is um, kind of your, you lean here and there on some pop culture references and they're kind of juxtaposed against poems that are very like personal confessional poetry. Um, and we're talking about kind of like minute instances in the speaker's life that are then, you know, sometimes they're related to like, there's a whole poem about a dream of Harry Styles, which I loved. And my girlfriend, a one direction Stan absolutely loved. <laughs> um, so big, big shout out to that poem. Um, but yeah, there's, there's like kind of this use of pop culture intertwined with like daily life is this a question i don't know but i think like that was something that i found really cool in the writing it's my enduring my most enduring love of my life is my love of pop culture uh other than my child of course but i you know, my relationship with pop culture has always been really intense, um, whether it's intense fandom or intense criticism, because I can go either way. Um, uh, and I, I'm i writing, I'm almost done, actually, a, a collection of essays, sort of memoir type essays about my relationship with pop culture. And um, in that particular book, which will be out next year, I go really in depth into what pop culture means to me. But for for me, so much of how I date my life is very specific to whatever was going on in the, in the culture at the moment, whether it was, you know, the day princess Diana died, um, you know, the day Kurt Cobain died or the first time I heard, um, you know, Nirvana's nevermind or, you know, whatever. So all of these moments, um, it's almost as if my life would not exist (laughs) without the pop culture or that I wouldn't remember my life without the pop culture. So um, I am hugely, um, always trying to find connections between the things that I love and the things that I hate and trying to figure out what that says about me and what it says about the world, you know, in general, because I think we all have these strange um, relationships with the things that we love and whether it's pop culture, whether it's, you know, fashion, whether it's, there could be a million things that people love. Um, but that is of always of huge interest to me. And, you know, on any given day, if I'm not reading my favorite celebrity gossip blogs it's then you know i everything's shot it's like coffee i need to read it <laughs> <laughs> i love that um maybe this will uh actually be a good transition when i asked that question i was like man how am i going to transition into the question i have for jen from my last guest uh jen my last guest was shazia hafiz ramji oh shazzy um, <laughs> yeah and she was wondering what music have you been listening to oh I mean, honestly, I've been listening to Justin Bieber's new album. <laughs> and I, I've, heard, I've heard like really good things about it, though. It's it's pro- 
problematic because he, I think it's called justice. It's called justice. And the reason it's problematic is that I think he's trying to atone for his appropriation of black culture, black music, um, you know, uh, fashion, all of that, except the only thing on the album that is even related to the topic is there's a voice clip of Martin Luther King Jr. And it, but the song itself has nothing to do with it. And it's basically all love songs for his wife. I mean, it's fine. I I mean, it's not fine, but also (laughs) I have a soft spot for Justin Bieber. I'm, you know, I feel bad about it, but I really do. I have one of his books that he wrote, which literally has 40 words in it. It's all pictures, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite books. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Uh, I don't know about the content of the album. I haven't listened to it, but I know I had like heard that. Uh, I think maybe like the guy who wrote the songs was quite renowned or something. I don't really know. Um, but I will check it out now. That'll be my homework tonight. I believe, uh, I believe his, his, I believe his main songwriting collaborator is, is a producer named Pooh Bear. I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs> that's, that's extremely cool. I'm all about that. Uh, <laughs> that's so cool. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, it's funny because when I was talking to Shazia and I think what brought this up was we were talking about like what music you listen to while you're writing or like the musicality of writing, but it's so fun to take this in the other direction and think of it in like a pop culture sense too. Um, that I love, but I also want to ask you too, like when you write, um, this is something we talked about when you write, do you listen to music? Uh, does it vary? Does it matter? Um, what's kind of like the setting when you're writing a poem or a story? I, I need total and complete silence when I'm writing. <laughs> I, really? I, yeah, no, I can't listen to anything. There can be, literally nothing like I, I don't want white noise I don't want music I if if there is someone else in the house they had better be quiet um <laughs> yeah so I I normally only write when there's no one else here uh like when my mm. son is at school or you know he's with his dad or whatever um no, no no there's no music there's nothing I love music but I cannot listen to it when I'm writing I will listen to it when I'm like writing emails or like inputting grades when I'm teaching but I won't yeah, I can't not when I'm writing yeah, that's, I feel the same way, actually. I at least, uh, I've been kind of getting more into, like, listening to ambient music when I write, but even that distracts me a little bit. I definitely can't do lyrics. Um, that's game over. I can't hear lyrics while I'm trying to write something. Um, but yeah, it's, that's, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned teaching there. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit, too, because I mentioned right at the top of the episode, I gushed about how you were uh, indirectly influential on me as a writer. And I wanted to ask a little bit about um, some advice maybe that you might have for young writers. So this is a very generic question, Mm -hmm. um, but it's one that I'm always interested in, which is if you were me or if you were somebody who was just kind of like starting out as a writer, what would you be trying to do? What would you be thinking through? Like, what are some tips you would give to somebody in that scenario? Um, there's a, there, I have a, I have a great storehouse of tips, but I'll tell you what's been on my mind lately is that I do think that as writers, especially now we're often asked to be activists. We're often asked to comment on things that are going on, um, you know, in terms of current events, we're often asked to be creating content for social media, um, to wade into controversial discussions. Um, and I think that that's all well and good if these are things that sort of feed you and nurture you. Um, but at the end of the day, 
Um, and I say this as somebody who's like well into her forties now, I think the best possible activism and the best possible way you can get your point of view and your voice heard is to save your best creative energy for your work, for your writing. Um, I will always want someone to be their best selves and to do their best writing um, because when you put out that stuff and it's really what you believe in and you've worked really hard on it and it's everything and you're so, so proud of it, that is the best possible sort of version of yourself that you can present to the world. And especially if you're being asked to do activism, for example, sometimes whatever it is that you're writing, if it's a novel, if it's poetry, whatever it is, um, sometimes the activism is really in putting the work out there um, and allowing sort of your joy in that work to be seen, you know, by the haters, as it were. And uh, which is not to say, like, I, I certainly think that community work is super important and it's definitely something that we could all share a little more. But my interest is in always helping writers be them best, be their best selves and helping them do the writing that nurtures them. I think this is very true. Uh, I think like, yeah, that it is a much more nuanced and um, eloquent way of saying the kind of like cliche, write what you know, sort of thing, or write who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I mean, I feel that I don't like, I don't know, I'm always scared to write about anything that I don't know about. I try not to write about things I don't know about. Maybe that's a good thing. But I like this tip because it because it tells me that I shouldn't be writing about things I don't know about. Um, that's maybe good advice. Maybe I'll keep that one. Okay. Um, but, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to jump back to your book. Um, Jen, the way that I read your book um, was I got it and it was the first sunny day that was... I don't know, around in a long time. And I took it to a park and I sat on the grass and I read your book. And one of the things that jumped out to me most when reading it in this environment is the way that winter is written about and the way that the seasons are written about in this book. Uh, And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit because a lot of what's being written in here is writing through mental health um, and writing through, uh, I guess, like a perception of the world that comes with that. And a big part of that for a lot of these poems is the setting, the winter, Mm -hmm. um, the cold, that sort of thing. I just wanted to kind of see what you, what was going on there. Like what, what brought you to writing about that? Thank you for noticing. There's a lot of winter (laughs) in this book. I, I, uh, it's so funny. I, you know, like a lot of writers, um, you know, I have like, I fight the twin demons of anxiety and depression and I have done so most of my life. And um, winter time is really difficult for people with either of those things. Um, and when I found when I was, uh, every time I would write, so I, my office is in my bedroom and my bedroom is, I'm not even joking, is all white and gray and silver. So it's very <laughs> wintry in here. And so I would, uh, I would write in my bedroom and I'd always, in my bedroom, it just always seems like it's winter. So that's probably part of it. Um, but also I think that for me, winter is just something that has to be survived or has to be gotten through. And, um, I think a lot of these poems are about just getting through a night or getting through a day, 
um, or just sort of getting over this hump of whatever whatever emotion it is that you're feeling. Um, and I also have a, a great love for um, the imagery of winter, even though winter's a hard season, like in terms of mental health, I think that in terms of like being able to describe things, um, the words that we use for winter are always really interesting to me. And I, and I, and I was always looking for new ways to like talk about ice or to talk about, you know, um, you know, the way that our, you know, the way that we interact in the cold and how it feels on our skin and stuff. So, you know, winter is a special yet also horrible time. (laughs) (laughs) I yeah I think that was like maybe one of the things that I related to most in the book not necessarily the winter thing although I do like same thing anxiety and depression and like seasonal affective disorder all that sign Mm -hmm. me up um but I found that like the way that the speaker and I guess you in many of these cases um saw things or presented them felt very like relatable for somebody who has gone through you know mental health issues um And I wanted to ask about that. Like, do you approach when you're writing something about or through mental health? Do you approach it differently than writing about other things? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, you know, I'm always really aware that, you know, it's no secret that I first started seeing a counselor when I was eight years old and have basically been in counseling my entire life. It's, it's, it's quite funny to me. So, um, you know, my, my, one of my sisters is actually a clinical psychologist also. And she has said to me that I use the vocabulary of, uh, of counselors so effectively because I've been in counseling my entire life and it makes her laugh. Um, but I, you know, I don't remember a time, honestly, Andrew, where I didn't think of mental health as something to be managed or something to be worked on as opposed to be being something that we ignore. Um, like I said, I was eight years old when I started counseling and um, my sort of uh, linguistic ease with it is so hardwired. I, I don't know how, how it would, could ever be otherwise. Am I answering your question? <laughs> Um, I think so. I, I honestly forgot what I asked. I was just listening to the story and I'm loving it. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, I no. I think like uh, that's a really interesting way of thinking through it. And it's funny too how you do like absorb. I've, I've also similarly been in counseling for quite a significant portion of my life. And I think the way that you pick up that vocabulary is interesting too. I haven't thought about how it might translate to poetry, um, but just like if friends are, you know, having trouble and they come to me for some crazy reason, um, I'm the person they pick, then often what I'm saying is stuff that I learned in counseling. Oh my God, uh, and Andrew, so- literally, I people will say things to me about their relationship problems and I'll be like, well, see, this is what happens when someone with anxious attachment wants to get together with someone with avoidant attachment. <laughs> and, everyone, <laughs> and everyone's like, shut up, Jen. And I'm like, yeah, right, I should just shut up. <laughs> but people pay for that, Jen. That's valuable advice. <laughs> it is, it is. Come to me for all your psychological needs, um, but I don't have insurance for it. So please don't take my advice seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness but yeah I I feel like um that that language around mental health too is like one of the things that blew my mind the most as I was reading this was um you know as I mentioned it was a sunny day and as somebody who you know deals with seasonal affective disorder it was the first sunny day in a while and I had been thinking about like how I'd been feeling the past couple of months and the way that you broke free of the way that mental health is often described too and how like depression is commonly described and like seasonal depression is commonly described was really cool to me. Like there were so many moments in 
the book where I was just like, oh, I've never thought of it like that before. You know, it yeah. that was like one of the f- coolest things about this, I think. And one of the things that I like most about the book was just how you approach it is mental health, but also really a lot of other things, too, uh, in such unique ways and like through unique imagery and metaphors and stuff. And uh, I just I don't know, not a question, but I just wanted to say I really appreciated that. <laughs> uh, well, Thanks, Andrew. I mean, I was when I was writing it, I was just, you know, I there was a period of my life where um, I struggled a lot with like loneliness and and sort of like, what does a single parent do after their child goes to bed and there's no one else to talk to? Um, and a lot of those poems were written in those spaces. And I, I think, yeah, I guess you can tell, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I feel like uh I feel like that comes through a little bit, you know, in the writing. But mm-hmm. uh, there were definitely um there's there's poems about other stuff too. I'm not doing it justice by just focusing in on one thing. Um, but this is obviously a common theme that runs through, uh, and and something that I wanted to talk about, and also something I wanted to talk about. I was just flipping through the book just now, um, like literally in the past three seconds, and I landed on the poem "Dog Years." Yeah. Um, Okay. I just wanted to talk about this poem because um, I like, I grew up with a dog that was like a brother to me. And when it died a couple of years ago, I was crushed and reading this poem um, brought back so much of that experience to me. And so much of uh, like things that I hadn't thought through uh, and things that made me remember this dog fondly. Um, For listeners, this is probably extremely alienating because they might not have read the poem, uh, in which case go get the book. But I feel like uh, it it was just such a cool poem to me. And I thought you did that experience a lot of justice. Um, I guess, could I ask you to talk about the poem a bit? Yeah, this is uh, Dog Years I wrote after my dear beloved dog Molly died. Uh, She died, oh gosh, I guess three or four years, four years ago now. And... um, she, I got her when I was like 27 or something. So she was my, I used to call her my life partner. So she was with me, uh, through so many changes, um, through several moves. Um, and she was a big furry mutt and she really did feel like a partner. She never really felt like my dog. Um, she I wasn't really her master. She didn't listen to me all that much, but luckily for me, she had good decision-making skills. So she didn't really misbehave, but um, (laughs) I just felt like she was running the show. She knew that this is the way my life worked and she was going to keep me on like the straight and narrow and she was going to help me organize. And when she died, it was like a real loss because she did do a lot for me. Like, you know, she was there when I was lonely she protected me if she felt like I needed protecting. Um, and she always read my emotions. And and there was, I remember when The End of East came out, my first novel, and uh, I got my first printed copy in the mail. And the first thing I did is I opened it and then I smelled it as you do with new books. And, um, and then I clutched it to my chest and burst into tears. And these were happy tears, of course, right? And then Molly... I remember her coming up to me and she put her head on my lap and she started nosing the book away. Like, cause she thought the nose, the book was like hurting me. And I was like, Oh, Molly, what a, what a fine, fine animal you are. Um, she was, yeah. So that poem, I really wanted to pay tribute to her. I think sometimes that we, um, pets play such a huge part in our lives. They're part, they're members of our family. And I loved her. Like I didn't think, I could ever love 
you know, a pet, but she wasn't a pet. She was my life partner. She was everything to me. So, I mean, RIP Molly, we love you. <laughs> we we do. And I, I thought it was really cool too, to like, I think a lot of times when you read like a poem that, and I would describe this as an elegy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like when you read a poem like that, it's so easy to um, find poems that are like, you know, this was the presence of this person or this being, and now it's gone. And that's the poem. Um, but this poem was filled with so much life that it it really I don't know it it hit in a different way um, and it yeah I don't know I just really wanted to talk about this poem um, but we're we're about like halfway through the episode now so Jen I need to get you to read another poem for us do you want me to read dog ears that would be cool yeah let me read dog ears such a nice segue Sweet. okay <laughs> dog ears for Molly. She snored in the night when you were alone together, lying on her back, four paws in the air. It was always a half-winny, and you thought she might have been dreaming about racing against a horse on cold sand. She loved the beach in winter. She loved the wind, sharp salt water needling her fur, and it only made her run faster. She loved the kelp bulbs that popped in her mouth. All that sand on the pads of her feet, perfect for racing dream horses or pretend day horses or even the seagulls that dip so low. When she died, you said to your best friend that you would write a poem for her, and this one doesn't seem right. You haven't given away her bed or her food, or looked through her bin of abandoned bones. The brown streak she smeared on the north wall of your stairwell is still there, two feet high. You sniffed it today, and it smelled like rained-on fur, like the clumps of mud you used to wipe from her belly. It took you twelve years to write about your father, one year to write about your old marriage, six months for the man who hurt you. It's too soon, you whisper to the photos you keep of her on your phone. But there was no judging her speed. She ran as fast as she could or she didn't run at all. Her tail tucked under her rump as your son built Lego worlds around her paws. She was fast or she was still and nothing in between. Soon didn't exist. It was and is only now. Oh, so good. (laughs) Anyone who loves dogs. Yeah, it will. Yeah, it it's really crazy. I so I think one thing that I want to talk about based on that poem um, is, of course, like this idea of feeling there's a poem in something, but not being ready to write it yet, or like not feeling like it's the right time to come out with this poem, you know. Um, and so I wanted to talk about that. Like, when do you know that you're ready to write a poem for Molly or anything in this case you know it's funny because I used to say it took me somewhere between five and seven years after something before I could write about it um which has turned out not to be true now (laughs) but um I it's really hard to know I mean I think that the only time you know you're ready to write something and this is like for me anyway is that I usually start you get an image that you want to write. And this is true for me across genres is that I get an image in my head and I think I really want to write this image down. And the image is usually related to the thing that you want to write about. So for me with that dog ears poem, um, it was the image of, of Molly. She used to run on the beach in Tofino and she'd run and run, run and she'd grab kelp bulbs and she'd kill them and then she'd pop them. And that was the image I wanted to write about because it was, you know, it was a memory that I loved about her, but I felt like it was also um, an image that was worth exploring in, in poetry or, you know, in writing in general. Um, So when the image presents itself to you and the image insists 
upon being written, I think that's when you know you're ready because if you want to write it, then you're ready. If you don't want to write it, then you're probably not. That's a very simple answer. (laughs) It's a simple answer, but I was also just thinking, wow, that's great advice in my head because I think like, here's the thing. Um, I'm 24. Okay. And if it takes five to seven years to write about something, um, that doesn't leave me with much to write about. Uh, and so I I feel like, um, I don't know, like I, I want to ask this question too, because I write a lot about growing up when I'm writing. And um, maybe this is something I subconsciously do too, because I find it a lot harder to write about things that have just happened or that are more current or more kind of ongoing. Um, is there like, how <laughs> bad question, um, but how do you do that, Jen? Um, okay, here's the thing. (laughs) I would say things that are ongoing or contemporaneous, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, with your daily life. um, I really find that if you really do want to write about it, the first thing you got to do is you have to get a draft down and it can suck balls and you can hate it. It doesn't matter. But once the draft exists of whatever it is, um, then you can see it on your laptop or you can see it in your notebook and you get distance from the act of looking at the draft and trying to work on it and trying to make a second draft. So what I would say is I think what happens is when we're trying to write things that are like current in our lives or that are related to something current in our lives, um, that we feel that what we're writing is wooden or we don't have enough insight yet, or that it just doesn't sound quite right. It, well, it doesn't matter. Every first draft is terrible anyway, whether you're writing about something that's close to you or not. So if you really do want to do it, just get the draft down first and then give it a couple weeks, go back and look at it. And I think you will find you've, you've gotten enough distance that you can give that moment more justice. That's really good advice. Uh, two pieces of great advice back to back. But no, seriously, that like... I I hadn't thought of doing that because I always find that to write a poem, especially, um, I I find that like I need what you said before, which is there has to be an image that strikes you and almost insists upon being written. Um, and when it's a current moment, I find those are really hard to come by. And so maybe coming up with a bad first draft, like one that where there's no expectations, Um, I I like this idea of like allowing distance between yourself and the moment through your work. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really interesting to me. I really do think that first drafts are meant to be ugly anyway. And, and whether you're writing something that's, you know, if you're writing something that occurred five to seven years ago, uh, the problem is not necessarily that you're too close to it, but that first draft will have a whole other, whole other host of problems that you have to deal with anyway. So whether it's every first draft is going to have its problems. So it may as well be the problem that, you know, you don't feel like you have enough distance, but you know, if you're writing something else, it's going to have a whole other ugly problem. So it doesn't matter. They're all ugly. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good outlook. I like yeah. that outlook. Um, okay. Jen, we're slowly creeping towards the end of our episode, very sadly. Um, but I need a question from you for my next episode's guests. And I don't even know who they're going to be yet. So this is a tricky one. Okay. So I would really like to know the answer to this question. What is the book that you read in your life that you hated the most? Like finished. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, really? Okay, this is going to lead me to a good question. But before we get there, yeah. um, I do this really mean thing where I turn the question around on the person who asked it. So, Jen, what book did you hate the most that you've read? <laughs> oh, good God. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. I can't say I'm familiar. Oh, don't read it. It's uh, a thousand pages long. And oh, it's, it's, is it 18th century? I think it might be. Yeah, I think it's 18th century. Um, and it's like a, a coming of age novel featuring a young man who treats women like garbage and magically everything's fine. So I <laughs> <laughs> don't read it. It stinks. If you dislike the patriarchy, this book is not for you. Oh, man. Okay, good to know. Good to know. I have to ask, so did you finish that book? Yeah, because I was assigned it uh, for school. Oh. Like I was doing, so my undergrad is, I have a very classical English literature degree. Um, and so that was one of the books. And I remember, I think it was the only one that I read in my entire degree that I just could not stand. Like I wanted to smash it. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, so here's here's the question that I was um, kind of teasing that I really want to ask, because I've had this happen to me like recently, where um, I'll let's say I go to a bookstore and somebody says, Andrew, you need to read this because it's so good. And I pick it up and I start reading it and I'm like, not really sold on it. At what point do I know to put the book down? Um, you can put it down whenever you want. <laughs> That's Yeah, I. I mean, yeah, but I also feel obligated to like, you know, what if it turns around and suddenly it's great and that's what they were talking about or something like that. Like, maybe that's my anxiety talking, but I feel like, yeah, (laughs) but I feel like I feel so guilty putting a book down or saying, you know what, this book isn't for me. Um, Okay, okay. I would say typically, if the book hasn't got me by 30 pages, I'm done. 30 pages. Okay. Yeah. That's the barometer. I mean, that's just me though. Like, and I, and it's different for everybody. And if you want to put it down after five pages, you can do that. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. I I needed somebody to tell me that. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I, (laughs) I feel like I've spent a lot of time being like, oh, other people seem to really like this book. So I need to like this book. And so I'm going to finish it, even if I don't like it. Because then I'll at least have an opinion on how the whole thing was bad instead of just (laughs) the first couple pages. Um, But this is good to know. I feel like relaxed and reassured knowing that I have your permission now to put the book down. It's fine. And like most of the time anyway, it's just you're going to finish it and it's just going to be like, man, whatever. Like it doesn't matter as long as it's it just doesn't matter. You don't have to answer to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) this is the therapy advice we were talking about it's true (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i i really like that so um we are as i said reaching the end of our episode but jen before we leave could i get you to read one last piece for us yeah i'm gonna read stigmata which is the last poem in the shadow list um okay so this is stigmata you have the mark of a witch Turn your palms up, look closely at the middle. There, a star, a stigmata from a past life, when you were thrown into a winter-cold river, left to sink if you were merely human, dragged out and hung for evil if you floated. The rapids were vicious, yet in your fists were sprigs of rosemary that you tore from the bush as the men carried you out of your cottage and through the garden. For memory, you thought, so they will not forget their shame. As you drowned, the jagged woody ends pierced the skin on your palms, and you saw the blood swirl upward to the surface. 
white swells, red wisps that spun like baby hair and then were gone. You listen to the woman who claims she has the sight. She asks, are you a conjurer? And you say to your surprise, yes. There were the imagined men you wrote into poems who then became real. There was the restlessness you wrote into your novel. And when your marriage died, you wondered what you had called into being. There's your father, your grandfather, and especially your grandmother. Once, well past midnight, you opened your eyes and the neighbor's porch light spilled over the edge of the bed. It was here your grandmother sat, perched like a gargoyle slowly coming to life. By then, she had been dead for 25 years. She said, they never knew me. They thought I was cruel. Silent, you watched her cry transparent tears. You wondered if you should touch her, but you knew that your hand would open and close and grasp nothing at all. In the morning, you couldn't remember how she had left. Maybe she walked. Maybe she faded away. Maybe she kissed your forehead before flying out the window, nimble and weightless. Cradling your hands in her lap, the seer asks another question. Do you get everything you want? You hesitate. No, but yes. She looks at your face, eyes following the lines of your mouth set hard in your jaw. Did he hurt you? Does he scare you? And you don't bother answering because you both already know he hurt you many times on purpose and by accident. The intent never mattered. You resolve to write a poem that wishes him away, a place where the desert grows truncated pine trees, bushes that are gray-green against the dust rising every time a car passes on the two-lane highway. He'd like it there. As far as the eye can see, he will be the tallest one. In the cramped living room, her three-year-old dancing to a cartoon on the television behind you, she traces your lifeline with her fingernail. So many slashes here and here. She takes a sip of water and then, were you a child? What happened? Before you can reply, she whispers, I'm so sorry. She turns your hand to the side. There is another marriage in your future. She smiles. This time you will be happy. He has been waiting for you. Someone is smoking weed in an upstairs bedroom and you blink against the smell. Well, you say, where can I find this man? She passes you a slice of apple taken from a plastic container shaped like a bunny's head and laughs. You're the witch, you tell me. Now we're done. Okay, yeah, for for the listener, I will have cut it out, but I did absolutely interrupt Jen in the middle of the reading and uh, and prematurely say, oh man, that was a good poem. Um, but yeah, <laughs> what, what, what happened in my head when you started reading that and you read the first line? Um, because I didn't remember which poem uh, Stigmata was. And so when you read that first line, in my head, instant response was, oh man, this is a good poem. And I got so excited all of a sudden for you to read it. Um, and it absolutely lived up to expectations, even though I cut you off. Um, <laughs> so thank you for thank you for reading that poem. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, you're um, welcome. It's, yeah, I feel like I have like committed a crime for waiting almost 50, yeah, 50 episodes now to get you on. Um, because you're such uh, an incredible writer and... I don't know. When I saw you had a poetry collection coming out, I was like, okay, this is the chance. I have to get Jen on the podcast. Um, but, I'll, I'll but, come yeah. back anytime. I'll come back anytime, Andrew. It's fine. <laughs> oh, yay. Okay, cool. Um, also, before we leave, I wanted to just quickly plug um, your children's book as well, because we've been talking about The Shadow List, but also Finding Home, The Journey of Immigrants and Refugees is out now, question mark? Soon? It is. It came out two weeks ago. There we go. So it's fresh. Yeah. Um, so go and check it out. Um, and yeah, Jen, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm, I'm such a fan and it was really, really cool to chat with you today. Oh, thank you. That was fun. Thank you, Andrew.
there you have it. That was me chatting with Jen Sukfong Lee. Jen, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed your book. I, I mean, listen, I, as I said at the top of the episode, I'm always ecstatic when I talk to writers about their work, but to talk to Jen, who is such a seasoned professional, a literary superstar, I think I called her in the intro, um, and somebody who's a local writer who really influenced me at the start of my writing, um, to have this opportunity to talk to her about her first book of poetry that blew my mind um, was just so cool. And so thank you, Jen, for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I understand you're a very busy person. We're all very busy people, but especially you. And uh, it was it was really nice to be able to chat. If you like this, this episode, this show, everything I'm doing here, well, um, we can make it official. It's super easy. All you have to do is subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave a review. That helps people find the writing of the people who I talk to on this show, which is, of course, the end goal. Uh, you can also listen to old episodes of the show, and I recommend you do so if you enjoyed this. You can listen at anchor.fm slash pagefright. That is A-N-C-H-O-R.fm slash pagefright. Um, let's see what else can I plug here. I guess, uh, Finding Home is Jen's other book. You should definitely read that. And I also have two chapbooks. One is coming up and coming out with Rose Garden Press this fall. It's called Poems for Different Use. Uh, and I also have my first chapbook with 845 Press at the Thames Review called Do Not Discard Ashes. And I believe copies are still available, so you can go and check that out too. Um, yeah, that's really it. I'll see you in two weeks. We have another great interview that I've already recorded, so I know it's awesome, with one of my favorite writers and a returning writer, so there's a clue for you. Uh, and it's definitely worth tuning back in for, so if you enjoyed this, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get that notification. Uh, with not much else to say, I hope you have a great couple of weeks as we uh, you know, open up these beginning stages of spring. Uh, my name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench. And of course, this right here has been Page Friday.